I'm Mark Feinsand, executive reporter for MLB.com. Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. When we started this series back in 2017, we welcomed nearly every general manager throughout the game. The interviews began as a featured part of the MLB Newsmakers podcast feed. There was so much interest in the interviews, we ended up launching the Executive Access Podcast on its own feed in the spring of 2018. Over the past few weeks, we've released a series of throwback episodes from that first season, featuring Nationals General Manager Mike Rizzo, Blue Jays President and CEO Mark Shapiro, and Yankees GM Brian Cashman, among others. This week, we present a pair of interviews with Cubs Executive Vice President and GM Jed Hoyer and Mike Hazen, who holds the same titles with the Diamondbacks. Both Hoyer and Hazen grew up in New England, then went on to experience the high of winning a World Series with the Red Sox, so we discussed the thrill of winning with your hometown team. Hoyer, who was part of the curse-busting seasons in both Boston and in Chicago with the Cubs, also talked about his decision to join Theo Epstein in the Windy City. We talked trades, the industry, and much more with both executives who were very generous with their time during our debut season. As we wait for baseball to return, I hope you enjoy these 2017 conversations with Jed Hoyer and Mike Hazen. So Jed, you were 28 when you landed your first job in pro baseball, yeah. internship with the Red Sox. Was a career in baseball always your goal, or was that something that sort of hit you in your late 20s? Yeah, it was always a goal. I always tell people that, you know, if I could if I could do it again, I'd be a lot more persistent than I was. You know, I applied for a lot of jobs when I first got out of college and, and didn't, you know, sort of sent letters, didn't really go about it the right way. Um, definitely wasn't dogged enough in my pursuit of, that, of, of a job, and then ended up, you know, having a bunch of different jobs over the next four or five years and, you know, kind of found out about um, this internship with the Red Sox, you know, through a friend. I knew Ben Sherrington. Uh, we played against each other in college and, and kind of that that presented itself and I went after it really hard. Um, so the answer is, yeah, I always wanted to do this. I don't think I knew exactly how to, how to go after it. You know, I think pre-Moneyball, um, there wasn't sort of an awareness that that people like me you know, we're being sought out for jobs like this in some ways, you know. So, um, yeah, if I could do it again, I'd be a lot more dogged and maybe I would have gotten in at 22, 23. But I actually think that the jobs I had um, helped me advance quicker, um, you know, because of some of the skills I learned in other jobs. So um, I guess it worked out well in the end, but uh, I definitely didn't take the most direct route at it. You once said of that Red Sox internship, quote, I'll look at it as grad school take on debt for a couple of years, and if it works, great. If not, I'll have no regrets. That seems like a pretty big roll of the dice, no? Yeah, I mean, I was working as a consultant at the time, and, and I remember um, talking to Ben Sherrington on the phone in my apartment and, you know, offering me an internship for eight bucks an hour. And, um, you know, he could have offered me nothing. I would have just taken on debt and, and done it. You know, at that point, um, I kind of looked at it as my one chance, you know. I, I knew... Um, how rare it was to have this opportunity and uh, I was going to grab it and the, the financial part of it wasn't going to be something I was going to I was going to consider so yeah I um, I took I took the eight bucks an hour and I was, I've always been proud of the fact that you know I sort of got the job and said all right I'm going to make this work and uh, after after me they ended up uh, using a stipend for um, for paying interns instead of hourly because I, I, I logged so many hours that I actually made decent money <laughs> so uh, I was proud of that, but uh, yeah, it was a roll of the dice, but it, at the time, it really felt like I have to do this, is I have to take this chance, this is what I want to do. You had a successful career, Division Three Wesleyan, as a player, 
you played in the Cape Cod League with guys like Mark DeRosa mm-hmm. and John McDonald. Does that playing experience, not big league playing experience, obviously, but does that playing experience help you relate to players a little better? I think so. I think playing, you know, I, you know, I wasn't good enough to play professionally. Um, you know, I always think to myself, like, listen, there's no, there's no replacement for standing on a mountain or standing in shortstop in front of 50,000 people and doing it. And there's no, you'd never say that there is. Um, but I do think just because, you know, like the reason I didn't play in the big leagues wasn't because I didn't want to or didn't think about baseball all the time or didn't care enough. It was, I simply wasn't physically talented enough, right? And so um, I do think, you know, you know, you know, playing a ton as a kid helps. Um, I coached in college for three years after, um, and I think that really helped me look at the game from, from a different perspective. Uh, so I always think to myself, there's no replacement for the intensity um, of playing in the big leagues. There's no re- replacement for the experiences that gives. But I, I do think there's plenty of people that have jobs like mine that you know spent their whole childhood playing. Um, you know, they, they, they spent their whole all their twenties dedicated to it. So I do think that. Um, you know, just because you didn't, just because you weren't talented enough to play in the big leagues, doesn't mean you didn't think about baseball just as much as those who did. Do you need to have that passion? It seems like a lot of the guys that I've spoken to for this project topped out in college ball, yeah, uh, or you know, maybe yeah. played a year in the minors and then was sure, out, uh, and then chose to pursue a career in the front yeah. office. Does that that passion for the game that you had as a player, even though you weren't physically yeah. talented enough, to, do you need that passion? Yeah. To, to embark on this kind of career? I think you do. I think that um, I tell people that we interview all the time, like, this is all baseball all the time. You know, that's it. So if you, you better love it. You better know when you come into work every day, that's all we're talking about. That's all we're trying to figure out. You know, that it's because you like watching a game at night or it's because you're kind of into it. Like, no, this is it. This is all we do. And so to me, unless you absolutely love the game, it's not going to, you're going to top out at some, at some level. Because there's going to be someone else that's going to read more reports, that's going to watch more video, that's going to care more. And, you know, ultimately we need an office of all people that this is what we want to do. And, um, but I think that goes not only for our jobs, I think it goes for players too. You know, that, I, yeah, I definitely know some players that have been around over the course of my career that didn't love baseball. They were just so physically talented that they overcame it, and they would, they would admit that. Um, but I think the guys that truly love the game, that think about it all the time, that think about how to improve all the time, that talk about it all the time, I think those guys go really far. And I do think that's something you want to look at you know, during the evaluation process. During your early time with the Red Sox, you got experience in player development, major league scouting, quantitative analysis, uh, advanced scouting. Did one area draw you in as something that you either felt you were better at or that you liked more? Um, well, the way that, you know, the way my career sort of evolved, I got, you know, Theo kind of grabbed me pretty early on, and I was working on the major league transaction side with him uh, from a pretty early stage. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think I did like having a little bit of a macro uh, view of things, and that, that's, like, that's the sort of way my career happened to, to trend. Uh, it wasn't so much that I didn't love scouting, didn't love player development, because I, I do, and I still, you know, you know, as, as, as much as you can, as I can be involved in those things, I am. Um, but the way my path happened to go, you know, led me to you know, kind of working on the major league transaction side more than anything else, and, and I love it. It's been it's been wonderful. Um, but it wasn't sort of my passion that pushed me there. It was the sort of circumstances that did. 
Ben Charrington once joked that the Red Sox in 2002, quote, felt like a startup mm-hmm. uh, when owner, new ownership took yeah. over. Did the franchise need that kind of reboot, do you think? In 2002? Um, I think so, yeah. I think that at the time, you know, 2001 had been a really ugly season chapter for the Red Sox. Um, very negative clubhouse, and this sort of the the overall um, vibe around the team was not positive. I don't think it was a destination at that point. And um, so, yeah, I think I think at that moment it did. Um, you know, I think that it was, uh, you know, it had been a, a relatively small front office. I think front offices were smaller then, and the Red Sox had a small front office even by industry standards at that point. And so, and, and some of those people left, you know, before we got there. So I've always said that, you know, to me, one of, one of the, the, the best things that happened in my career was simply being hired by the Red Sox. There was just opportunity everywhere um, because it had been such a small front office that, you know, people that were titled interns, you know, were forced to do so many things that were kind of above our experience level because we didn't have a lot of people. You know, now people that came on five years later came into a much fuller front office with much less upward mobility. Um, but I look at you know other people that were hired around the time I was hired with the Red Sox, and I think what's helped a lot of us is just we were able to sort of have outsized opportunity early on because of the, 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 the small size of the front office when we got there. We all know about the trip that you and Theo and Larry Lucchino took to yeah. see Kurt Schilling in Arizona, Thanksgiving of '03. Yeah, stayed for Thanksgiving when. When Schilling agreed to that trade to, to come to Boston, yeah. did you guys have the sense that that was the piece that was going to put you guys over the edge? I think we felt really good. You know, we knew we'd beaten out the Yankees to get Schilling. It was really a sort of two-team race to get him. And, um, you know, we knew how much the Yankees were kind of waiting in the wings, hoping that our deal fell apart so they could jump in. And at that stage, I mean, you know, at that stage, it was Red Sox versus Yankees. You know, and it was... You know, I felt like our off seasons were just sort of sort of spent trading punches back and forth, you know. And um, I always tell people, you know, people always talk about the you know, the Thanksgiving with Schilling. You know, Theo and I were three weeks later. Theo and I were in New York meeting with A Rod um, for two nights, and I remember the feeling I had. I think it was like the day before I left for spring training, being in the office and finding out that um, the Yankees were that I had acquired A Rod, and that. It felt like that was their punch right back, you know, and I felt like that was just the nature of, of that era. You know, I've kind of accepted the fact that I don't know if I'll ever experience anything like that with the two teams going back and forth like that. It was a, it was a wild experience and a wild way to, to kind of start the early part of my career. I know this is usually something for us media types to do. Do you ever think of what would have happened if the A-Rod to Boston trade had actually happened? Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting to think about for sure. You know, I think... Um, the second part of that deal that no one talked about was, you know, the fact that we were giving up, you know, we were going to give up Lester, um, and that would have certainly had a had a effect later on down the road, more in 07 and, and 13 um, than it did than it did early on. Um, I don't know, you know, at the time, A Rod was the best player in baseball. He was playing shortstop and hitting 50 home runs. Um, obviously, Manny was a huge part of the team. So I don't know. I think it's easy to say 04 would have. It, the easy answer is that 04 wouldn't have happened because, you know. It would have been a different mix, um, but I think Alex would have played pretty well in Boston as well. So you know, who knows? I don't, I don't think we have any idea. Um, but it's kind of wild to think about now. And um, it was a different era 
for transactions. You know, there was there was very few big markets back then, and so when when a player like that was available, it was one of a handful of teams that that even could be considered a possibility. So when I look back at an off season where we traded Nomar, you know, we had to deal with Nomar for Maglio Ordonez to the White Sox. You know, we 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 get Kurt Schilling in a trade, and we trade for um, a Rod and have it have it blow up. You sign Keith Folk. Just the the kind of deals you were able to to go after at that point. It was just like I said, there were fewer suitors, there were fewer options for those players. So it really was a wild time to to work for the Red Sox. Besides, if the A-Rod trade had happened, he wouldn't have been there to get into the fight with Veritech, and then who knows, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and, and that and that's one of the moments. Like, I, I, you know, whenever I think back on that season, you know, people, you know, people forget. You know, we were. You know, we were a 500 team for May, June, and, and that part of July, and really a frustrated team. And I've always felt like, even though we didn't really get hot for a few weeks after, I always felt like that that fight with the Yankees was was important and probably pretty symbolic. Just like Tampa fought us in 2008 in April with Shields and Coco, and I thought that was very symbolic for them. And it's, it's not something you want to recommend, but I thought like I felt like Tampa felt like, hey, enough, these guys have. Been kicking us around too long. I think we kind of felt like that way with the Yankees as well. Right. As a New Englander, raised in New Hampshire, what was it like to be a part of the the group that helped end that curse? Yeah, you know, it obviously it was incredible. You know, growing up in that area, knowing how much it meant not just to Boston or Massachusetts, but to the entire region. And that's one thing that's really cool about being to working for a, a truly regional team. You know, any, anywhere you go, all over New England, there's, there's Red Sox hats and. Um, it was wild. It's, it's, it's a lot of different perspective for me now, having been a part of the Cubs as well, and and and, and you know thinking about the, the, the differences in the two things. But certainly being from New England and knowing, you know, you know, watching '86 and you know, and seeing how how people believed it could never happen, and you know, watching us, you know, lose a five-two lead in Game Seven the year before to the Yankees. You know, there was. Um, it was an incredible experience, and, and I'll never forget, you know, just kind of the you know, driving back from the airport, you know, after after we landed, after you know being the Cardinals, and just the, the scene on the way back to the ballpark with everyone getting out of their cars and you know construction workers, you know, you know, you know cheering from the 18th floor on scaffolding and stuff like that. It was just the, the most wild scene watching this whole city just come to a standstill. About a year later, you and Ben were named co-GMs, December of 2005. Yeah. Theo returned sabbatical. Forty-four days later, I think it was. <laughs> How bizarre was that whole situation for you? It was bizarre. It was, uh, yeah, it was incredibly bizarre. I think you could write a book about that offseason. You know, um, it was a great experience for me in hindsight. You know, it. You know, I definitely, looking back on it at that moment in time, there's no way I had the experience necessary to. You know, I was. I had been working in baseball at that point for two and a half. You know, not quite three years. And, and Ben and I are. Our co-GM, but it was um, it was you know being thrown in the deep end of the pool, and um, I think for my career, I think the fact that I was able to sort of get a glimpse for 44 days with Ben, you know, with Bill Joy, with Craig Shipley, to get, to get that glimpse of what it's like to run a team, and then be able to step back and, and be assistant GM for the next four years, you know, it was a it was a great um, taste of what it would be like and I think I I think my career really benefited from that from that 44 days um, 
And also, I had a pretty good sense during that 44 days that Theo was going to come back, and it was just a matter of how the negotiations would go. And I was talking to Theo all the time, so um, I definitely felt like, you know, I might have been in the deep end of the pool, but I had my floaties on to a certain extent with Theo, and I think that was really helpful. But it, it was great for me, a great experience, and um, it helped me for the next four years for sure. It was a short stint, but an impactful one. You exactly. guys pulled the deal for Beckett and Lowell yeah. during those 44 days. How rewarding was it to see that trade work out the way it did? Yeah, and it was it was really it was very very rewarding, and it was also really um, was was a valuable lesson because Beckett dropped a five ERA the first year. Hanley Ramirez was the rookie of the year, and so it certainly appeared that deal was underwater after year one, and then in year two, you know Beckett, you know finished second in the Cy Young, uh, was completely dominant. Uh, in the postseason, we win the World Series, Lowell's the, the World Series MVP. So it was a good lesson that, you know, when you make a deal, you know, you have to, you know, you can't, you can't worry about every up and down of, of that deal. You have to sort of, you know, believe in what you did and realize that, like, you know, the first year of a deal that's going to impact you for four or five years doesn't define the deal. And I think that, you know, that deal – didn't look great after 06, looked great after 07. On the other side of that, when you make a deal that five years down the road, you look back and say, man, that was a bad deal. Mm -hmm. Corey Kluber comes to mind. No doubt. Is that a tough thing to live with? I mean, you also benefit on the other side of that, a guy like the Arietta deal yeah. obviously worked out yeah. to your guys' advantage. Is it just part of the is it just part of the job to have to you know, yeah, deal it, with that? It's really, it's really fascinating because I think that if you're, you know, if you want to do this job well, you have to to just take those lessons and really try to learn from them while at the same time realize that there's an, an element of this that's out of your control. Um, so, for instance, with Kluber, to this day I feel terrific about the process that led to that deal. Um, you know, I think we, we, we spent so much time, you know, scouting our system. Um, you know, we actually, you know, Internally, obviously, we were incorrect in our evaluation of him, but felt like we were trying to trade for Ludwig without giving up any any of our top guys, and you know, we felt like we did that. You know, in a year that we didn't expect to contend, we were contending. Um, you know, watching him, watching his evolution, is it, you know, was fascinating because he did it, same thing. Like he, you know, he, 2010 he went over there, struggled. 2011 he really struggled. I think he had a five ERA in AAA as a 25 year old. And then started to come on 12, 13, 14. Um, I think 14, he won the Cy Young. And so wa watching that, watching his evolution, that is, you know, made me go back over my notes dozens of times and think about what, what could have been done differently. Um, but then also having deals that have worked out in a similar way for us, you know, it, it's, you know, you kind of, you, you, you're sort of always evaluating those, those two things and weighing those two things. And, um, I always think to myself that in, the, in this job, you have to be willing to make deals. And you know, if, if you're gun shy and you're afraid of, of making mistakes, um, you know, I think I think that's when you get in trouble. You know, and uh, I think you know a deal like Kluber um, it definitely makes you soul search and think about you know where where it went wrong. And um, you know, I'm glad there's deals like Arietta and Hendricks to, you know, to balance that out. But uh, it's a fascinating one. I, I'm not going to lie to you. Like you know, Game Seven. He beat us in game one and beat us in game four. I, I didn't want to see us, you know, you know, lose three games to Corey Kluber in the World Series. Having made that trade, you know, 
whatever it was six years earlier. Right. Uh, before you got the job in San Diego, you interviewed for GM jobs in Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. Washington. As it told me that the, the GM interviewing process is quite a yeah. uh, quite a thing. How did those two interviews help you prepare and, and yeah. you finally got the job? I loved them. You know, the, the, the Pittsburgh interview I took during the 2007 season and um, you know, I like I knew Frank Coonley from the commissioner's office. He had just gone over to Pittsburgh, and I, I like Frank a lot. And and that was a that was the the one interview I took that I felt like, you know, I need to have this experience. You know, I don't think I was necessarily ready at that moment to leave Boston, but I, I but I wanted to have that experience, and it and it was a really good thing to go through. Um, you know, the Washington job, you know, that was the that was and that was in, in 2009. And that was a great process. I think, I, honestly, I think I was in D.C. four different times to interview during that process. And, you know, I definitely wanted that job. My wife was actually in business school at Georgetown at the time. So she was living down there. I love the city and I love the opportunity because they were, you know, at, at the bottom. And this looked like a great, great rebuild. And I think, you know, Mike has done a, a great job there. Um, it was a great experience to go through having to, you know, it, it makes you think it makes you think about what your convictions are. It makes you uh, really prepare your mind in a different way than you do on a day-to-day basis, you know, working for a team. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it was, uh, it was, you know, like I said, it was a great experience. The Washington experience was really good for me and, and it did prepare me for, um, for interviewing with San Diego. I asked John Mose like this about, uh, one of his early moves as the Cardinals GM was trading Jim Edmonds. who was a real big, real popular yeah. player there in San Diego. He traded Adrian Gonzalez, mm-hmm. who obviously was the face yeah. of the franchise. Is that a hard thing to do? Uh, you know, to, or when you look at what you got back, and you know, obviously you know, like Rizzo, and yeah. you ended up having a lot of history with him yeah. down the line. But is it is it tough to go into a place, take over, and and wind up trading? You know, essentially yeah. the face of the franchise. Um, it's difficult because I think you you know that it's something that's exceptionally unpopular, but at the same time, it, that was such a clear decision that you know. You look at it and you thought to yourself, like, you know, this is this isn't one that's you know, an eighty twenty decision. This is a hundred zero. Like, we can't afford this player, and we certainly can't afford to let him walk away and get nothing for him. You know, you know, candidly, when I went into San Diego, I thought there was a exceptionally good chance you're trading with the deadline in two thousand ten because if we didn't compete, that's what would have happened. Um, we ended up trading him the winter of, of you know two thousand winter two before the two thousand eleven season. So it was difficult to realize how disappointed people were that you traded this guy that had, you know, probably five or six great seasons there. He's a hometown kid and a really good ambassador for the Padres. But as far as you know, decision making, that was actually a really easy decision. Um, and I will say this, you know, in hindsight, you know, Adrian and John Boggs were great to me with that process because you know, early on they knew we couldn't sign them, and frankly, they didn't want to sign there if they were going to be a disproportionate percentage of payroll because they realized that eventually he'd get pushed out to somewhere else where he wouldn't want to be and I think you want to control the process more. So they were great to work with during that process because you know we came to a conclusion pretty early on like okay this simply isn't going to work for either side and you know, let's just go ahead and let's, let's just know that we're going to part it somehow. When you left San Diego you said you weren't looking to leave. No. Uh, what tipped the scales for you? Was it, was it the opportunity to join Theo with the Cubs a no-brainer when that presented itself? 
I wouldn't say it was a no-brainer because I love I love San Diego, and it was you know I, I did love the you know what we were building, and I, I felt like we were on the right track. Um, I love the staff that we brought in. I mean, I, I don't think you just pour yourself into something for two years, you know, don't see it to conclusion, and say leaving is a no-brainer. I think that was, that that part was really difficult. Um, but 2004 had been such an incredible life experience for me. Um, there's one more chance in sports to do it. And so I think that part of it was, you know, how do I, how do I turn down an opportunity to do something I never thought I'd experience again on a really actually even bigger stage than, than Boston. So that part certainly tipped it. And, and listen, I, I, you know, the opportunity to work with, with Theo and Jason in, in a different setting was really great. You know, I think Theo and I talked a lot about, you know, not only doing it, but doing it with, you know, kind of the, the same group of people you know, was really exciting. Um, but yeah, I don't think you can pour yourself into something for two years and say it's a no-brainer. Um, but the Cubs is such an... I mean, I, look, I feel so incredibly fortunate that the, four, that the Cubs job presented itself because it's such an incredible opportunity. The dynamics of your front office, yeah. a little different mm-hmm. um, with you, with Theo. Yeah. Does your long-standing relationship with him make this work easier than it might if it was somebody you didn't have that history with? Yeah, I don't. I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't work if you don't have prior experience, but um, I don't think I ever could have entered this relationship with someone with someone else. You know, I think that you know I'd gone from you know the, the final decision maker in San Diego to, to number two here, and so sort of giving up some of that authority. Um, you know, I knew that I knew that'd be challenging at some level, but I also knew that with my relationship with Theo, that I would, you know, our trust level and the, auto- the autonomy that he would give me would, would be there. Um, so I do think it's a really good it's a really good front office structure for the way baseball teams are run these days. But it's not without risk because if you get two people, you know, you, you sort of two people that are looking to to run things and two, two people that are have strong personalities and, and egos, frankly, I think it can be a structure that can that can lead to some big challenges. Someone actually wrote, your job requires big ideas but a small ego. It seems like you'd agree with that. Like my role? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that, um, but it, it's made a lot easier by working with Theo. I mean, I look at this guy, like, you know, if you could fast track someone to the Hall of Fame, you just you do it, and um, so I look at it as an opportunity. You know, I've been incredibly lucky to work with him for 13 of the last 15 years, and to learn from him and to sort of be a partner with him in this process. So, um, you know, long term, I think my benefit from this relationship is incredible, um, and I've learned so much from, from being around him. And uh, so, yeah. So if um, if the ego has to take a step back for that. Uh, it's definitely going to be well worth it, not only, not only now, but I think well into the future. It seems like this arrangement is becoming more common, though, yeah. around the league. You look at the Dodgers, mm-hmm. the Twins, the Rays. There are a number of teams that have this similar yeah. type of thing. Why do you think baseball is starting to trend in that direction? I just think that the job is getting bigger and bigger. You know, I think um, there's more information in the game today. Um, there's more media in the game today. Um, so there's more things pulling at, you know, final decision maker and I think having someone that sort of has you know in my case certainly has done the job before 
sort of you know it, it allows you know multiple people to be tackling the same project and you know that that's not a that's certainly no knock on all the great you know GMs that have worked in different eras um, but I do think you know with with technology information media it's a bigger thing to your arms around now you acquired Rizzo in San Diego you come to Chicago you acquire Rizzo in Chicago what was it about him that, that you that stood out so much as a prospect yeah I think finding that you know as a player um, sort of the the combination of power and and hitting ability was really appealing you know this left hand hitter with power that um, also has the ability to control the barrel and, and, and is a good hitter was really appealing but so much of the conviction was as a person you know that he's he's one of the guys you felt like you know has it he's just not going to let himself fail he's always making adjustments um, I remember when I when I, we acquired him from the Red Sox obviously I still had a ton of connections with the Red Sox at the time it's the number of the number of texts I got from people just you know, really disappointed to see him go but also completely convicted this guy was going to be a, a big time middle dealer bat uh, and excellent defender um, was really telling you know I don't think I've ever acquired any player and had that many people sort of behind the scenes like oh I love this guy this guy's you know this guy's got it and um you know, we were excited to get him in that deal. Theo didn't want to give him up. I mean, Theo loves Riz. He didn't want to give him up. But it was just you're acquiring a you're acquiring a first baseman and, a, and you know signing him to a seven year extension when David Ortiz is your DH. You know, it was, such, it was Rizzo was such an obvious, easy inclusion in that deal. But you know, Theo always loved him. It was just you know Adrian helped him win right away. Um, and frankly, Adrian was a perfect fit for that ballpark too. You know, the way the way he hits. Um, and then, the, you know, the trade here was just, you know, I remember sitting at, at lunch with my wife when I and, and found out that the Padres had traded, you know, Latos to Cincinnati and they'd gotten, you know, Alonso in the deal. And, like, the first thing that snaps in your mind is, oh, my goodness, Rizzo might be available. Um, so certainly when we got over here, we came over here at the end of October, you know, so you kind of go through, you know, all of, our planning in November, you know, no point did anyone say, hey, let's go get Rizzo. I mean, well, he wasn't available. He was going to be the, the Padres' first baseman. And then all of a sudden that deal happened, and, and, and we knew he might be available. And so you know, we worked at it for about a month. And, um, you know, I think the Padres had had some, some good offers. I was glad they picked ours. His first 49 or 50 games didn't go very well. Yeah. How much conviction do you need to have as an executive and your belief in a guy to just say, that's okay, this guy's going to figure it out? Yeah, it was actually that was that was an area where it was really great to have Theo, because Jason and I had watched it. You know, we watched him dominate in AAA that year, and then brought him up, and he really struggled. And the swing got kind of long, um, and it was really great. That was a, one area. It was really great to have Theo because he was like he hadn't watched every at bat, you know, and he was like, who cares? You know, I mean, so you look at the number of players that have struggled for you know 49, 50 games. It's, it's endless, endless number of Hall of Famers, right? That have come up and struggled and. You know, it, it sometimes it's good to have that total outsider's perspective of like, yeah, I, yeah, I didn't watch it, so what? Like, this guy's gonna be, this guy's gonna be, a, a, you know, a great hitter. I don't, have to, I don't have to worry about, you know, what 21-year-old does in Petco Park in his first 50 games or so. I remember talking to you after Game Seven. You almost didn't have words to describe what was going on. When did it set in? When when did it set in to you that you guys have won the World Series? Yeah. So I always tell people that. 
the night of Game Seven was just relief. You know that I think it, I think my emotions after Game Seven would have been totally different if you know Raja Davis flies out and we win the game six to four. I, I think <laughs> right. that like that your emotions are a lot different. I think having have the game you know played out the way it did, I felt like just it was such a sigh of relief that entire night. You know, yeah, we celebrated and everything, but it was just it felt like relief. And then. It actually started sinking in the next day. We were all just hanging out in the bleachers. It was like this odd 70-degree yeah, early November day in Chicago. You know, we all kind of went home and, and slept, and then we came into the ballpark, and we were hanging out in the bleachers, just enjoying ourselves and throwing a football around. And this, it, was, um, it, was, it was a pretty cool moment. And then obviously the next day we had the parade. And I remember the parade in 2004 one of the greatest memories I ever had. And I remember telling my wife as we were leaving the house, I'm like, this is, this is going to be awesome. I, I, I was so excited. And it so far surpassed anything I ever could have imagined in terms of the number of people and the excitement. So, yeah, it started to sink in the next day, and then the parade certainly solidified it. And, uh, you know, I know the players had talked all year. Like, the parade was always this kind of like, symbol of, of, like, you know, like, you know, can we have, a, can we have this parade in Chicago? The fact that it was able to come together in two days and be even greater than everyone imagined, um, I think that's something that no one will ever, ever forget, having been a part of it, because it was so much bigger than even the greatest expectations you could have. And the more, as much as you allowed yourself to think about it during the rebuild, it was that much better. We now take you to our conversation with Mike Hazen of the Diamondbacks. So Mike, you played for four years at Princeton. You were drafted in the 31st round by the Padres in 1998 uh, before a shoulder injury shoulder injury ended your career. How, how tough was that for you to deal with as a guy who obviously had his sights set on a professional playing career? Yeah, you know, it was uh, when the um, when when your career comes to an end. It's it was it was sort of jarring. I think probably as it is for for most of the players here now and the players that we've dealt with for a while one thing is a point of clarification my shoulder injury didn't uh, didn't end my career my lack of ability ended my career um so yes yes people people have you know as history has gone on and time has healed some wounds somehow my playing prowess is 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 perceived to be far better than it was uh, at the time the fact is i just wasn't very good and you know but again you, you you don't think that way i think when you're a minor league player you know you every and that's great, and that's what we want all our players to do too. Is you know you 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 start to play professional baseball, and why 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 can't you play in the big leagues? You know you're here, you have a uniform, and they pay for you to do it, and um, and you always had those dreams when you were a kid, and uh, unfortunately that you know that wasn't meant to be. Um, so I had to think pretty quickly as a 24 year old non prospect, um, you know what what I was going to do next, and and you know I had to make that decision fairly quickly, I think. Um, and, and, you know, it wasn't my choice, but you have to move on and pick up. And, you know, I, I do think one of the big things for me in that is I, is I always keep that in my mind and have being a farm director and others that when you're now on the other side of that table, you know, how extremely difficult it is to hear that. I, you know, I only had to hear it once. Some players have to hear it a lot. Um, but hearing it once and as devastating as it was has always stuck with me. Every time we send somebody out of camp or we had to release somebody as a farm director, it, you very quickly can put yourself in that person's shoes. Um, I think it's something that keeps you pretty humble about what you're doing. Um, and, and there's a personal, you know, there's a personal aspect of each one of those um, when you do it. 
you know, and I think I value that perspective even as hard as some of those conversations are. I value that perspective, you know, because it, 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 you, when you end up doing a lot of them, as you do when you have big camps um, in the minors or the majors, you know, sometimes the, the, the challenge is running together, and, and you never want that to be the case. How did you land your first job? as a non-player. Yeah, so, um, you know, when I was done, I, I didn't know what I was going to do. I, I don't think working in a baseball front office was really a thing. It's become a thing. <laughs> At the time, I had never even thought of it or heard of it, and, you know, I knew who a general manager was and all, but I never really thought about what what skill set I had to really work in a front office. Um, and so, but just starting to talk to people about what to do next, and really the one, the, the one simple thing was I love the game of baseball, sort of period. Um, that's all I knew. And, and I, didn't, I didn't want to stop playing, but I was going to stop playing. And so the next step really was, was trying to figure out how to, how to maybe stay in the game somehow. And, and I, you know, whether it had been coaching or scouting or anything like that, so I just started sending resumes around. Scott Bradley, who was my coach at Princeton, um, put me in touch with Mark Shapiro and Peter Gammons. And, um, you know, through that circle, I, I ended up getting an internship with the Cleveland Indians. And... Um, I worked for Peter for a summer in the Cape, scouting the Cape League. He uh, <clears throat> he loved the Cape League, but didn't have time with all he was doing to get down there. And so he was like, "Just go down there and watch games, and send me reports, and I'll try to help you out as best I can." And he sent those reports around to GMs, and at the end of the summer, started getting phone calls, and you know, ended up getting an internship with the Indians. During your time with the Indians, you worked your way up from intern mm -hmm. to advanced scout, assistant director of pro scouting, and ultimately assistant director of player development. Mm -hmm. As you made your way through the ranks there, was becoming a GM your ultimate goal? Not really. Um, again, I, I think I didn't really know what any of that meant <laughs> when, when I first got there. Um, one thing that I'm extremely grateful to, even as an intern, was the things, and, and John Hart was in his last year as GM there, and then Mark took over, Mark hired me. But John was there for that first year, and I, I still remember even that first year, walking in to do John Hart's board, his 40-man roster board in his office, and he'd be on the phone, and, you know, you'd knock and not want to come in. And he'd be like, no, come on in here. Stand, you, you'll, you know, you can, you can learn by listening to people talk on the phone, and, I'm, you know, you, you can be in here if you want to. And, and, I, and I had that early exposure to those guys, to Mark and, and John, um, and both treated me that way the whole time. And, you know, as respectful as you tried to be, there was such an open door and exposure to anything and everything that was going on in the organization that you couldn't help but learn. Um, I think over time, as I watched them do their job, it, you know, in the end, I didn't still didn't necessarily think that I'd be a general manager someday, but the, sort of being in a leadership position in a baseball front office, whether ultimately as a farm director or otherwise, was was something that I think. I think I could, you know, do this in time, hopefully. I, I like, you know, being around these guys, being part of the team um, as we made a lot of decisions and we went through some ups and downs there. It was a great learning experience, though, and, and it's because of, that's the way they made it. And, again, I try to keep that in the back of my mind, too. Now that you're in a different role, um, you know, you have the ability to set that same, you know, culture or dynamic um, if you want. I feel like I've asked this exact question to about ten other guys so far this spring. What did you learn most from Mark Shapiro? <laughs> I feel like everybody worked for him at some point. Uh, I, we may all have. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He, um, he was so focused on building the culture of the organization through so many different avenues. It was 
two, two, two of the things that probably stand out were maybe in a, from a front office standpoint of the quality of hiring, every hire that mattered. Um, from internship, the, the whatever, you know, even, even when we were going through our internship process, like the seriousness through which we took that, when I moved above that and sort of then became part of the hiring process for the, for the internship position, the standard that we held, the, the, what we were looking for, the, the standard which was you should be looking for future general manager, right? And, and you know, we're, everybody gets pretty busy with everything that goes on in, during the course of a season with a baseball front office, the draft and, and the season itself and all these other things. And, you know, you can lose focus on having that standard for hiring interns and, and other employees. And he always made sure that that standard was extremely high. And I think that led to the culture that exists within his organization. And then on, from a player procurement standpoint, you know, he was, he was very, the, the cultural aspect of it in terms of makeup on the team. Um, was always a big deal to him about what types of players we had playing for us and that it mattered. It, you know, talent mattered, but the makeup mattered too. It seems like front offices around the league are loaded with Ivy Leaguers. Mm -hmm. uh, aside from the obvious education you all received, do you think there's a reason that, that front offices are skewing that way in recent years? No, I, no, I don't. I mean, I think, you know, we, I think one, as an industry, we need to do a little better job of branching out of that, uh, diversifying, you know, backgrounds, I think, a little bit more. Um, that's a challenge for all of us that I think we can all get too insulated into how we think and thinking the same way. It's dangerous from a, I think, from a decision-making process standpoint. Um, you know, I, I, I do think, you know, the connections are, are, are part of how any industry probably works. Um, but we try to stay away from that in, in a lot of cases because we don't want to get wrapped up in, in, again, like channeling one type of person that we have here, one that think all the same way, that look at the game the same way. The, the best part about this game and, and with the increasing influence of all these outside factors is there are opportunities for so many different types of backgrounds to make an impact on a baseball operation. I think we're seeing that organically through web development, data development, um, architects, um, you know, and that's just on the non-baseball side of things, We're, software development, which, which will branch out into different backgrounds, I think, skill sets than some of the people that you may be talking about. And then I think, you know, the, 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 one of the interesting backgrounds that is the former player that is now interested in front office work you know, the guy that's actually lived it for real, not like some me for fake, uh, but, you know, has played 10 years. A lot of you played college ball. <laughs> but, 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 but 10 years of big league time, right, of, right. of guys that, you know, we've had the fortune of hiring. We, we, you know, guy we had in Boston and Brian Bannister and, the, you know, a couple of guys, Dan Heron and, and Burke Badenhop here. And, and you see that Tommy Hottavy in Chicago Cubs and, and others, you know, you see a lot of those guys. They have such a unique background and skill set, you know, um, that brings so much to the table in terms of for those of us that never experienced that and can't really see it through their eyes. So I, I do think with the way each organization seems is trying to create competitive advantages for themselves in doing that, part of that is going to be expanding the breadth and the, the diversity of their front office. Yeah. It seems like a lot of those 
position used to be, oh, you'll bring in the former player to, you know, be a face and totally. wave his hat and go to some luncheons right. and that kind of thing. And now a lot of the players There's who are real job getting in, these are real jobs. Well, because they want them. I think they, they, you know, I think the, 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 being a part of the baseball operation, it's this is a very challenging environment and industry, and it's, it's, they're hard jobs, but they're, I think they're rewarding jobs. You're, you're part of a team that could win, and they, I think, just like we are, I mean, they're more addicted to that from their playing days, and even we are, right? The thrill of being part of a team that has a chance to, you know, one of 30 teams that could, could win a World Series. And you don't necessarily have to travel the baseball schedule <laughs> right, as a coach right. or a manager. So, so I think the, the balance can be struck a little better from a from a family life standpoint. But, yeah, I think the traditional path was in the past, you know, maybe that some of these guys would go into coaching or and now there's this, I think it's expanding into other areas. And so I think it's great for the game. You joined the Red Sox in 2006 mm-hmm. as the director of player development. For a kid raised in Massachusetts, was that a, a dream to go work for the Red Sox? It was. It was. Um, when the Red Sox called, um, I remember Mark calling me in, and we were in a hotel in downtown Cleveland having these leadership meetings, and he said, hey, look, look, the Red Sox want to interview you for, for the farm director job, and John Farrell was the farm director at the time, and he just said, and this is another thing that I take away from him, he said, if they offer you the job, you got to go. Like, I'd love to keep you here. Um you have a job here. If they offer you the job, you got to go. You, you got to take this opportunity. You got to take this responsibility. You got to take this step. You can't, don't just stay here because this is what's comfortable. I always remember that. Um, and, and being pushed into that challenge, which I probably wasn't ready for. I'm sure Theo and Ben will attest to that uh, <laughs> when I get over there. But, and, and, and yeah, being able to go home was phenomenal. The, the team I grew up watching my entire life with my dad and you know it was uh it was it was great opportunity and then and then not even really knowing what I was getting into uh, ending up being able to work with Theo and Jed and Ben and, and a lot of others is uh you know is an experience I'll never forget I'm sure nobody came out of the woodworks to ask you for tickets or anything right <laughs> your ticket list got a little bit longer certainly <laughs> Um, Let me guess, mostly for the Yankee games. <laughs> no, not not there. That's not what there. Duquette, Duquette told me that when he was the GM, he also yep. from New England, yep. he said all of a sudden everybody wanted tickets, but they only seemed to want them for the Yankee games and the playoff games. Right. I said, where are you when Cleveland's in town or <laughs> no, Detroit's in town? Somehow, somehow my, my ticket requests were fairly, you know, they went 81 strong. <laughs> playoffs, so. Under your watch with the Red Sox, you developed players like Dustin Pedroia, mm-hmm. Jacoby Ellsbury, John Lester. How rewarding was it to see those guys play such key roles on World Series? Yeah, well, number one, I, I de- developing under my watch is a is a is a very generous statement. I think, uh, yes, I was there while those guys were there too. Um, those guys needed very little development. They did the majority of what they were going to do, and um, because of the talent and the makeup that they had, um, I will say, being a part of a group, the scouting group that we had there, that was bringing in those players year after year after year um, and then seeing those guys come up through the system have an impact on the organization have an impact on the team and really in 2007 having a large impact on a World Series championship team and then even in 08 going all the way to the LCS and 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 09 making the playoffs it was very rewarding watching kids that you got to see in A-ball um, you know whether they struggled or not, or how they got to where they got, or the Anthony Rizzo's and the, 
you know, and, and, and others uh, that came up through there, you, you, you know, that's part of what makes the game so fun to work in it. To those, those are your rewards in the front office is to watch those guys fulfill their dreams and be successful in those large stages and watching them become a part of a, of a team and, and, and in the organization when sometimes, you know, it, it can be a challenge with an older team or a younger team trying to blend all those things together and watching those guys become part of the fabric and, and of Red Sox history was, was phenomenal. But, you know, it, you can't do those things without having great scouting departments that bring those guys in year after year. And I mean, look at the makeup of the guys that you're talking about between Lester and, and Jacoby and, and Petey and Uke and, um, you know, and then Pap and Daniel Bard and, and all the guys that came up through there. So I would assume that after 04, I mean, a lot of that 04 team, some of them are still there in 07, but bringing in new blood mm-hmm. was probably important to getting that second championship because not that there was complacency among the old guys, but once you've done it, it's different going for a number two, whereas guys who weren't there for 04 were probably taking a different approach to it. Yeah, I, I think it was more of a natural. I think that 04 team was a little older, and I think it was just natural that the, that the roster was going to roll over. I think we saw, um, you know, where that team was headed and what we wanted to do from trying to sustain that run. <laughs> you know, as, as good as you are at the time, if you're not looking down the road two or three years, you're going to get yourself caught into a bad spot that is going to be a lot harder to get yourself out of. Now, to get there sometimes, you have to make tough decisions that don't necessarily match up with what your fan base is expecting to see. You know, you ride everything out until the end um, to when your team gets too old. It could be too late. You know, um, and so I think a lot of decisions that were made to make sure that we were infusing a lot of those younger guys onto the rosters was strategic by Theo in terms of trying to sustain that run for as long as possible. And I mean, look, even that's not you know fail safe in a lot of ways because when you bring young players onto your roster, there's going to be some volatility with those young players. And and there was uh, we were we were very fortunate as those some of those guys that came onto the roster and in. And PD and Uke and, and Pap and Ellsbury and those guys, uh, Johnny Lester, they, you know, they, they sort of, in a lot of cases, hit the ground running. Um, but, you know, that, that was sort of something that needed to happen, I think, given the different, where the organization was in 04 to 07. A lot of the guys you worked with in Boston at that time, mm-hmm. Theo, Jed, Ben, yourself, are now with other teams, mm-hmm. top decision-making positions. When you think back to that group being together, it was almost unrealistic to think you would all stay together for a long time yeah I don't know you know I I never thought the the best part about that group and and I can say this and I'm I'm sure it happens in other places but from my perspective was nobody wanted Theo's job nobody wanted Jed's job nobody wanted Ben's like everybody had a job to do and everybody just kind of kept doing it and I think that's part of the culture that Theo created that everyone being as part of the team felt valued as part of the team and um and I think that's why I don't know at the time I never now I sit back and look at it and say okay maybe you know we should have thought that way um I don't think anybody was bold enough to think that you know what or to think what would happen as 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 those things kind of all split apart over time but um you know, I look back on those days, we all do, with tremendous fondness. I, I'll never forget having worked with that group of people. And, you know, maybe, maybe the band will get together, get back together someday and when we're all old and, and, and decrepit. But, um, you know, it, it, was, it was such a blast. And, and that, that's all because of Theo, you know. 
and what he created there. Um, it was just, it was so much fun coming to work. It was crazy. It got crazy sometimes. I can't tell you any of those stories, but, <laughs> but they, uh, you know, it was, it was a great place to be. Um, and we had some ups and we had some downs, you know, and the, the ups in Boston are great and the downs in Boston are tough, just like they are in some other places. But um, it, was a, it was a great place to be. You interviewed for GM jobs in San Diego and Anaheim. I've been told the GM interview process is quite grueling. Mm -hmm. What did you learn most from going through that process a couple times? How little you know about the game. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it, it was an interesting dynamic. It's, it's an interesting process. You know, you try to prepare. You, you, you watch from afar 29 other teams, and part of our job is knowing 29 other teams. But you never really know any organization inside and out. You can't um, because you don't really know a lot of the personal things about what goes on in the organization, whether it's how the front office operates, how the ownership structure operates, how what the players are really like other than evaluating them and, and, the, and the cursory makeup information you have on players. So, you know, think you really go into those things blind in a lot of ways, as much preparation as you try to do. Um, but it's a, it's a, you know, it's, it was a great experience on the backside because when you, even when you didn't get that job, you came back out of there, you were, you were a little more of an expert on that organization, at least for your organization, because, right. you know, you had studied their minor league system in detail or their recent drafts and international signings and their major league team. And um, so that was, that was, and it's always, you know, it's always interesting because even in those interview processes, it's not usually a one-way street. It's a, it can be conversational at times and you learn a lot about how that organization operates and that's fascinating to me. Because I think you can take some, everybody does things well, and we all do things probably not as well. And, you know, you try to pick up on those pieces. We all copy each other in some way, shape, or form on certain things. That's how this league runs. Um, so when you could pick up some of those things, it was, it was great. After four years as the assistant GM in Boston, you were promoted to GM. Uh, yet the perception was that because Dave Dombrowski mm -hmm. had final say, your power was limited. Was it difficult? Was it a difficult situation? No. no. I, th and I think that's accurate. Um, whether power being limited or basically being in the same role. I mean, yeah, that's what, that's what it was. Dave was the number one decision maker. At the end of the day, you know, he made decisions. I, Dave, uh, what, where, where it, it worked so well was internally Dave didn't operate that way. You know, he ultimately he's accountable and was responsible for every decision in the end. And, and, and that was his choice to make it. But the, the way he, I mean, valued everything that we had to say in any one of those we're all anytime you're involved the way i look at it is and this goes for me now here is whenever you're involved in a decision if you have a voice in that decision if, if you if you have or have an opinion given in that in that decision you're responsible for that decision I, it doesn't matter what it said what publicly is perceived as who has final say i've always felt that if you're going to have something to say you you're you better be accountable to what you say and if you are wrong you are wrong um some of the things that went sideways on us in Boston, I don't, they weren't Ben's fault, they were mine. And I still carry that with me today. Um, and, you know, again, he's was the ultimate authority in that situation. And so it is, you know, those things happen in the game. But from my personal perspective, I, I, I was just as responsible for everything that happened um, and, and to why some things ended up going the way they did. But Again, so when, when Dave came in, I mean, however the structure was, being included in every inch of what we did as an organization, I mean, Dave, Dave did that, and so it was great. You know, we got to learn 
a ton from somebody that had, one, operated a front office a lot differently than the ones that I had been exposed to, and then and, and took a lot from that. And then, and then two, you know, he, he valued what, but I think what I had to say in a lot of cases. And so, um, you know, that was a rewarding experience. You knew, obviously knew Tori Lavulo yep. well from your time in Cleveland and Boston. Was it an easy decision to, to bring him out to Arizona? Was um, it was an easy decision to bring Tori. It was a tough decision in choosing the manager because of the candidates we had. Uh, Phil Nevin was outstanding. Um, he's going to make a great manager. Uh, really came down um, at the end between those two guys, up, and the pool we had was fantastic too. Um, but in the end, I, th- I think I remember going. Allard Baird used to always say, every day I knew him, um, the most important relationship is between the general manager and the manager. And if that relationship isn't working and that relationship isn't solid, you got problems. You're gonna have problems in the organization. And and so as much as you know, my my, it wasn't so much my history from a personal standpoint with Tori. It was the knowledge of how we work together and the ability for us to dig into very difficult conversations very quickly, knowing what the work that we needed to get done here. Um, that was sort of the ultimate reason why. And, and beyond being a, a, a watched him be a very good tactical manager, he's a great relationship builder, he's a tremendous communicator, all those skills um, that a lot of our guys had, and he has exceptional skills in those areas, that was probably one of the, the biggest um, separators for me. Was the idea of having your own team, so to speak, the one of the biggest things that attracted you to Arizona? No, not necessarily, not in a vacuum. That wasn't really an overarching goal. Um, I think the intrigue of being here and, and seeing the situation and knowing that it was a, you know, going being more so probably in Cleveland than in Boston. When I, when I when I was in Boston, you know, Theo and Ben and those guys, the the infrastructure was sort of very well developed. Jason McLeod was there, and they were already having very strong drafts, and the farm system was in a good place, and the major league team was good. <clears throat> you know, when we were in Cleveland, we went through more of a transition from the one team that tore back down to build up ultimately to the to the '07 team in Cleveland. I saw this in some ways a little more analogous to that where there was a building process involved and and, and, and from the infrastructure level underneath the farm system and, and other things and it was very very intriguing and knowing the people out here the ownership they were going through the process and how committed they were to to building those things that that was what was most most exciting we hope you enjoyed our latest throwback episode of executive access next week we'll chat with longtime executive sandy alderson whose lengthy career included stops with the Athletics, Padres, and Mets. And look out in the future for new episodes coming live in 2020. You can search for Executive Access on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Art19, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about Executive Access. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinzett. Stay safe, everybody.